The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. And uh, if any of you are new to Common Ground, feel free to check in at the end of the evening. And Jean Fagerstrom is here, our program host. You can check in with Jean, one of our longtime teachers and leaders here at the center. You can answer any questions that you have. And uh, I was gone in February, as some of you know, and we've been covering other topics since I've been back, but we're going to go back. For those of you who have been reading along in Guy Armstrong's book, we're going to go back. And so we're on Chapter 12. If you don't have it, don't feel like you have to have it. It is a really good book. And we're at the maybe last third. It's getting a little bit more refined. So... For those of you who are brand new or relatively new to your practice, this book on emptiness, a practical guide for meditators, again by Guy Armstrong. Um, sometimes we hear things and it doesn't really relate to our practice and we just don't reject it, just put it on some shelf in the mind and then who knows, later in your practice it might be very relevant and it will just sort of pop out that whatever you heard or whatever you read previously. If you want to get a hold of the book, Moon Palace Books, a wonderful independent bookstore. Now it's actually moved a little closer. It's just across Lake Street, maybe <coughs> four blocks away or so on Minnehaha. And um, they'll sell it for 20% off if you tell them you're from Common Ground. So this chapter 12, it's about, in Buddhism we call it abiding. And um, there's something interesting in our practice, and I, I mentioned it a little bit in the guided meditation, there's sort of two things in any moment of experiencing, right? There's the particular object that the knowing mind is knowing. The object might be a sound that's being heard or a sight that's being seen, a thought that's being known, sensation that's being felt or known, right? And then there's also how the mind is knowing it like the attitude of mind. Is there greed in the mind that's knowing? Is there impatience or aversion in the mind that's knowing a particular object? Or is there kindness, equanimity in the mind that's knowing a particular object? Now, of course, these, you know, you could call them like a filter or these attitudes, it's also something that's arising in the present moment. So if I, if you, for example, in our sit tonight, in moments at least, felt that generosity of the heart, you know, that sort of beautiful, simple, but beautiful, radiant quality of kindness or balance. That, and, and you were relating to your body in that, with that kindness or with that balance, or you were relating to your whole experience with that kindness and balance. There are then, in a sense, two things. There's the experiences, the sights, the sensations, the thoughts that were being known, and that attitude of mind, too, was, in a sense, another object of experience that was being known. So one of the things, uh, a very important and natural shift that happens for people who practice for a while is initially, for most people, the practice is quite dependent on the objects, like really feeling the whole body or feeling the breath in the body or being aware of sounds. 
And without those more concrete objects, right, the five physical senses, sights that are being seen, sounds that are being heard, sensations that are being felt, smells and tastes that are being known, and mental activity that's being known, without these more concrete objects of experience or aspects of experience, we just be lost in thought. So we need some concrete thing like breathing in, okay, feel that touching at the nostrils or feel the rising of the abdominal wall as I'm breathing in. Feel the falling of the abdominal wall as I'm breathing out. Just to kind of realize that the awareness can be in the present moment, right? But the more there's some, not perfect, but some stability of present moment awareness, then you can, your practice can make the shift where the mind naturally becomes more interested in the attitude than what's being known, more interested in how the mind is knowing. Like, is it relating to the present moment experience in a really generous, boundless, simple, kind way? Or is it a little controlling, trying to make something happen, trying to get something from experience? Like, I want to get to that home place that I had two weeks ago when I was meditating. That attitude has a very particular feel to it, just like being more spacious, more friendly, more forgiving, more equanimous. That has a very particular flavor or vibe to it too. And the more you're, you start to notice, and you can just, like even in your daily life, it doesn't have to be just in your formal meditation time, but just to have that question drop into the mind from time to time, what's the attitude? I mean, it's kind of amazing that we haven't been curious about this because it, it, it really matters what the attitude is all day long. But when, you, when you're honest, when we're honest with ourselves, how many times did that question naturally arise to us, whether it was you know, actually verbalized in the mind or just sort of arose intuitively? But doesn't mean we, we aren't sometimes aware of the attitude, but to sort of really step outside of the attitude and to see it as a thing in itself that can be known. Oh, grumpiness is like this, or impatience is like this, or gratitude is like this. So it's, of course, just as relevant to notice the wholesome views, attitudes, qualities of mind, ways of relating, as it is to notice the unskillful, right? And then in terms of this book on emptiness and this ongoing topic that I've been teaching from, you know, the Buddha's teachings on emptiness, probably, I don't know when we started, but maybe late summer, so it's been a while now. The reason this is so important for emptiness is when we um, are able to keep in view, keep in mind, one of these qualities of love. So the Buddha divides love, spiritual love, into four facets, right? Really, love is love, or that goodness of the heart is the goodness of a heart. So that's that basic friendliness, that basic generosity or benevolence of the heart. And then when that quality of mind is around suffering, then it naturally, nimbly expresses itself as compassion. Like, oh, I don't want, I don't want, me or anyone to suffer, right? That wish for non-harming, that wish for myself and for all beings to be free from harm, free from suffering, right? So that's compassion. 
But when that natural generosity, kindness of the heart is in the vicinity of what is beautiful for me or for you, then that love expresses itself naturally as appreciation, right? Or gladness, just appreciating, happy that you're having some success or happy that you look, you know, I look at my cat resting there on the bed, you know how sometimes turns, you know, just that total undefended, right? And, or even when the cat's eating or any number of little moments and there's that just very natural, it's not contrived, the heart appreciates, right? The heart's happy because of the ease or whatever beauty, goodness the heart is seeing. It's just we appreciate that. Nobody is trying to be appreciative. It's just the natural expression of that attitude when it runs into something that's beautiful or good. It appreciates it. And when things are confusing or ambiguous, then that's when that quality of equanimity is most obvious. That sort of, as I mentioned in the guide, it's it, that beautiful balance. That quality, that expansive, generous quality of the heart, but it's not dependent on the particular conditions. It's, in a sense, we, we sometimes say in English, for its own sake, right? That goodness, that expansive balance. It's not because the conditions, it's despite the conditions, that balance, right? So that's why in some, in some ways in Buddhism, equanimity is considered the full flowering of love. Not like a profound compassion or profound gratitude or wonderful friendliness, but the most mature kind of love is this very radiant, so it's not like a, Sometimes we think of equanimity, you know, I, I think because we sort of make it synonymous with detachment or distance, right? But that's not how upeka is the Pali word for uh, equanimity or equipo, equipoise. It's much more energetic, right? It's a really energetic emotion, but a stable, like sometimes energy... There's a lot of energy, but it's not stable. So we're sort of neurotically doing things because the energy is really big and we don't know what to do with it. But sometimes there's a lot of energy, but it's really grounded. It's really stable, really balanced. It doesn't need to do anything. That's more like what equanimity. So there's a lot of energy, but it doesn't, the energy isn't active because it understands that right now in this moment, things are the way that they are. Now, in the next moment, the mind might attune to some suffering and that wish for there not to be harm, that wish to alleviate suffering, there may be action. But then it's ready to go right back to the balance when it no longer sees that some action is needed or it's ambiguous. It's not clear what action is needed. And it's totally okay about being radically present but not engaging. But it's not because it's afraid to engage. It just does, isn't dependent on being engaged as it sees, is intimate, both internally with what we're feeling internally, emotionally, but also what we're seeing and experiencing externally around us. Right? So there's that, that's that kind of nimbleness that upeka, equanimity, this beautiful balance of mind points to. 
And it's not afraid of things shifting around because the balance was never dependent. Now, initially, when we first discover what equanimity is, it's usually when the external conditions are really nice, and then we realize, oh, I don't need anything to be different than it is. But because we're on a tropical beach and there's soft breezes and we're with our friend and we've had a nice meal and everything's perfect, and we see, oh yeah, this is what it's like for the mind to not need the moment to be different than it is. But spiritual equanimity is that same balance, but it's not arising because of particular conditions. right? It's arising because of wisdom. The wisdom that understands, you know what? This is how it is right now. So the reason, the way that this connects to the Buddhist teachings on emptiness, because remember, for those who haven't been here, you know, there are different ways to talk about emptiness, but it's really about um, realizing, like as the mind discerns or sees clearly, that this moment is simply whatever it is that's being known, right? This is being known. And part of that, this being known, is maybe some mental activity that says, no, there's a lot more going on than just what's being known. But that's just a thought being known. So emptiness is really, the teachings on emptiness is really pointing to our simple, direct, subjective experience. So as a human being, our subjective experience is moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment something is being known, right? And it happens very quickly, you know, this is being known. So we could never, like, name or note it and really get everything. But still, just in observing the mind, we see that it's just something being known, something being known, something being known. And there's never anything we subjectively never experience anything outside of that continuous thread of something being known, something being known, something being known. Does that make sense? So the Buddha invites us because it, it's liberating. It transforms our heart and mind. He's inviting us to contemplate emptiness. So using the divine abodes, these qualities of love, they're called the divine abodes or the Pali phrases, the Brahma Vihara, so you might hear that from time to time, the divine abodes, these beautiful emotions of friendliness and compassion and appreciation and equanimity, these four qualities of love. There's sort of a, a foundation and a jumping off point, right? Because instead of our mind being fixated on particular objects of experience, this thought and my identification with the thought, or this these sensations and my not liking these sensations, or this sound and my liking that sound, or this sight and it's neutral, so I'm neither for it or against it, so I'm just ignoring the sight, right? So normally the mind is pushed around by the different objects of experience. But when we move to sort of a friendliness, a compassion, appreciation, and then that loving quality matures into sort of a more radiant, balance, more stable balance of equanimity, right? You see, already the mind is less dependent on the objects of experience that are coming and going, the sensations, the emotions, the thoughts. 
it's more intimate on the one hand, more sensitive on the one hand, and less pushed around, less reactive on the other hand. And that's the sort of interesting thing that these teachings lead to. Greater sensitivity and less reactivity. That has a very particular flavor. What do we call that flavor? Equanimity, right? That's what equanimity is. Sensitivity without reactivity. More and more, greater and greater exposure to whatever is coming and going, emotionally, internally, externally, through the five physical senses and through being aware of mental activity, right? These are the six ways we sense the world, the present moment, the subjective experience we're having. More awareness, more sensitivity, more honesty, less defendedness, less armor, but also less reactivity. Because the mind is abiding, this is where the word abiding comes in, abiding in equanimity. Because when the attention, right, that's the part of the knowing mind that sees or that connects, right? So when the attention is attending to the balance, then it's not looking at the different objects of experience, the thoughts, the emotions, the sounds, the sights, the sensations. It's not feeding off of experience, trying to get something or get rid of something. Instead, it's noticing balance. Oh yeah, things are the way that they are. Noticing the boundless, I don't know, did people sense that, at least in moments, the boundless, expansive quality of love, friendliness, it really, you really feel it emotionally as something that naturally wants to fill the space of the body and mind. That's kind of the telltale sign that you're doing the contemplation on love, these four qualities of love um, in the way the Buddha meant it to be done. Like the phrase the Buddha used, you see this many places in the discourses, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with this heart, this mind imbued with you know, equanimity or appreciative joy or compassion or friendliness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. So that you can even memorize that little phrase. It's kind of nice to sort of have that direct transmission. You know, above, below, all around, everywhere and everywhere, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with this mind, this heart, imbued with love, with equanimity. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, boundless, without hostility, without any ill will, without any fear, you could say. Right? Well, that's sort of nice. And because that, in a sense, is in the forefront of attention, so mindfulness is knowing that radiant balance, it's everything else, the sounds, the sights, thoughts, whatever, it's all there sort of in the periphery of attention. We're not, the mind isn't excluding, isn't shutting off the other ways that it's sensitive, but it's keeping the way of relating, in this case equanimity, in the forefront of attention. And because it's noticing that, and because that's a very expansive and beautiful quality, skillful quality of mind, it's it remains unaffected by all the other aspects of the present moment that are coming and going. 
even if they're very provocative things. Somebody's insulting you or the knee really hurts or you're feeling cold or you're really hot. Or, right? These things can come and go, but the mind is absorbed, abiding in equanimity and feeling really safe, trusting there. And it's like, then you get a sense of what immunity, real immunity is, like how to be a human being living a messy, in a messy world where we're in relationship with another human being. I don't know if you notice. That's really challenging. Some of you are raising kids, probably even more challenging, or you have a body or an aging body or a sick body or whatever. You know, you're pregnant. That's pretty amazing too. Or you're interested in dealing with some of these messy parts of our lives like racism or sexism or you know, other injustices, wanna, the environmental issues, want to have a world to pass on to the next generation. Right? But there's no easy answers to these things. Or even how to, like, what should you feed your cat is complicated, let alone all these other things. And so this equanimity, we see like we can engage these sticky things because the mind isn't dependent on getting it right. So the engagement, we're willing to learn. Like we may engage, we may say something to somebody. turns out not to be the right thing to have said. But we weren't expecting to be perfect. We're expecting to learn. And the equanimity, the balance, not me, not having my ego dependent on being skillful or good or right. I end up being wiser. My actions end up being more skillful. And when they're not skillful... I immediately learn from that. So I'm more likely to be skillful in the next moment or the next time something like that happens. Does that make sense? So this abiding and emptiness, we're really moving from a mind that's really dependent and fixated on the different experiences that are coming and going to a mind that's learning how to abide in this wholesome way of being, this wholesome way of relating. So it it's sort of a jumpy, it's not full awakening yet, right? We don't have the insight the Buddha had, but we're much more in that direction because we've gone from living in a way where we're constantly getting pushed around by the pleasantness or unpleasantness or what we like and what we don't like to this place with more immunity because we're now, the, the ego in a sense, just to talk about it in a more provocative way, is really grounded in a wholesome attitude a loving attitude, a balanced attitude. And because it's grounded there, it's less dependent on how other things play out. And whatever plays out, it's going to relate to it with intimacy that that equanimity allows, or that kindness, that compassion, that appreciative joy allows. And the, the Buddha talks about different ways to move, and I'll talk about this again next Sunday. But one of the ways is the way I talked about tonight, where you develop the quality of love, because that emotion has a really expansive quality, and because it's really pleasant. When you get basic friendliness, or compassion, or appreciative joy, or equanimity, so any of the four flavors of love, strong, it gets strong because you keep it in mind. You don't make it strong. As you keep it in mind, the mind really connects with it in, in sort of in a funny relative sense. It becomes the big thing in the mind. 
because you're interested in it and you're keeping it in mind. When your mind is sort of flitting about, it doesn't get strong. You know, a little bit with the loving kindness and now I'm worrying about this. And I'm back to loving kindness and now I'm wondering what I'm going to eat when I go home. And then I'm back. But when you hold the attention there because you're interested, not any sort of tight, I want to be good at this attitude, but just you're interested in equanimity and loving kindness and whatever the flavor might be. And that curiosity is holding the attention there, then it will grow because of the continuity of awareness. It gets really strong. And then it's really at that point, it can lead to deeper states of concentration, what are called the jhanas, or it can lead to the contemplation on emptiness. Because you're really, the mind then, the wisdom in the mind, you could say, is getting really curious about the experience of equanimity, like the non-attachment. And there's sort of a natural way that this progresses. Really, and this is what I find so beautiful, it's all about a refinement of happiness. You know, the first kind of happiness is just a mind that's like relatively stable. Like you have to be there to even begin, like if you want to sit down for 30 minutes and do a meditation on loving kindness, To do that, you already need a first level of happiness, which is something like, my mind is relatively free from being a jerk, from being a bad person. Like if you spent two hours manipulating someone, cheating someone, and then you want to sit down and do loving kindness practice, it's not going to work. So if you can actually sit down for 30 minutes, it means that at least for that day, maybe generally speaking, recently, in the last few weeks, you haven't been cheating, you haven't been hitting, you haven't been actively harming other people. Because if you're living in terms of your ethical conduct in really unwholesome ways, it's like people who are being unskillful in that more gross level, you know, stealing, harming others, manipulating others, insulting others, it doesn't feel good to slow down and to check in with the body and the mind, you know, to be mindful. You'll see that, you know, people who are, and it, we should have a lot of compassion, and sometimes we're that person, of course. We get in a rut, and we somehow get negative, and we'll notice, or we'll see it in another person, like it's, those people are restless. They don't want to just settle down, right? So we can notice that, like, if you're able to sit, with some success, like stay put for 30 minutes or whatever it is, and actually be curious, like your mind, because we're basically just beasts trying to survive, use our power to survive, whatever that means, physically, and not, not just physically, but also emotionally, right? If you're willing to put down that agenda and take your attention and be aware of your body and mind, you're already in a pretty balanced place, and you can notice that basic happiness we call it integrity sometimes in, in Buddhist terms. Sila is the Pali word, ethical conduct, that were the remorse in our life for having been unskillful is at a relatively minor level. So we can actually sit down without feeling really bad about who we are or have to be in denial so we don't feel how bad it feels to be who we are. 
Does that make sense? Because if, if you have a lot of remorse, you have two options. One is to feel really bad, which is the way forward. And the other is to stay distracted or to stay busy because it's so uncomfortable. So that's the first level of happiness, just to be able to feel okay enough in your skin to, be, to soften a little bit and to take awareness and shine it, in a sense, back toward the body and mind. Oh, yeah, this is how it is for me right now. And then we can do this sort of inner practice we call meditation. And the, the next level of happiness we call, in Buddhism, in Buddhist terms, we call seclusion, the happiness of seclusion. And we get this, like even as we began the sit tonight, you might remember I was just saying, well, you could practice breathing in sensitive to the whole body, breathing out sensitive to the whole body. So this is that discovery that I can put down everything else and just be aware of one thing. You can do this brushing your teeth or washing the dishes. It doesn't have to be in a meditative setting, right? Just doing one thing at a time and doing that one thing so fully. Like artists, I see Kurt back there, painters, dancers, some musicians, other things people do, people who play with their children, right? You do it 100%. You're really showing up. You're just allowing every part of the body and the mind to be doing this one thing. And what, from a Buddhist point of view, we realize is everything else in the whole world has been put down temporarily, right? I'm not thinking about tomorrow. I'm not thinking about yesterday. I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing. I'm just doing the doing, the brushing the teeth or the breathing in or feeling the whole body, feeling the whole body as I breathe out. And that's a very particular happiness we call the happiness of seclusion. Basically, the, happy, the mind is happy realizing it can put things down temporarily. That's, a, that's what we call a spiritual vacation. Right? And then to the nth degree in Buddhism, we call that jhana. So jhana is sort of the word, the Pali word, for when the concentration deepens enough that the mind has withdrawn from the sense gates. Seeing still works. The eyes still work. The ear still works. Skin still has touches. But awareness isn't attending to that surface level of experience. It's really withdrawn in. So even though there's a body and mind, it's like deep sleep, right? The mind, the body still works, still sensitive, but the mind is really withdrawn. You know, I had a brother growing up. You could do anything you wanted to him when he was asleep. You could, you know, we could carry him around. He wouldn't wake up. <laughs> I have some remorse about it. <laughs> I was the older brother. Anyway, maybe, hopefully he won't listen to this talk. <laughs> but, uh, so that's a very particular kind of happiness we can notice. Just even when we start to move, where, like, and we want to know this happiness because it encourages the mind to put things down and just to be with one in-breath, to be with one out-breath. Right? And the same with like when we're just doing the metta, the loving-kindness, and just to keep that in mind. Because I could worry, I could be irritated by this pain in my knee or this thing that happened earlier in the day, but I'm not choosing to pay attention to that. I'm choosing to pay attention to this flavor of loving-kindness. 
because it really matters what we pay attention to. And that's what the mind needs to know that in order to experience the happiness of seclusion. That it's a karmic act, we say in Buddhist terms, what the mind pays attention to. Right? So by paying attention to the breath coming in, I'm not paying attention to any other thing. And that intention to just be with the breath coming in or just be with the sensations of the body or just be with the emotion of loving kindness has ramifications for the heart. It affects who we are. This is the mind that is paying attention, making the intention to pay attention to this. And that changes changes the mind. And that mind experiences the happiness of seclusion. And the next kind of happiness uh, we call the happiness of dispassion. And this is the happiness of the mind realizing that it doesn't have to be dependent on feeling. So what happens once you know the happiness of seclusion is the mind starts to experience a lot of inner happiness, you know, mental bliss. I mean, it really can get strong, the rapture, precisely because the mind is taking a vacation from being pushed around by its mental act, the kind of grosser level of mental activity, like its worries and memories and thoughts about the future, as well as sounds and sights and touches. It's withdrawn to a large degree. And so it's like feeling the unification of having withdrawn. Right? It's like in this collected, unified state. And that isn't being interrupted by a gross level of thought or sights, or sounds, or touches. They're there, but the mind knows not to pay attention to it because it's on vacation from being a normal human being. Right? It's in a concentrated state. And so this next level is whatever happiness, whatever pleasant experience comes, it's sort of like a, a challenge where the mind sees the joy, sees the pleasant feeling, sees maybe wholesome thoughts, like loving kindness and that radiant quality of love. But it isn't personalizing it. It isn't grabbing a hold of it because it's nice. right? And so then the mind really quiets out. So this dispassion is a happiness where the mind realizes it can be independent of even needing peace. One of the flavors of deeper concentration is this balance of equanimity. A grosser level of this sort of inner happiness is the mind feeling a lot of pleasantness and really um, abiding, really kind of holding that pleasantness of ease, contentment, just the sweetness of like, oh, I'm in a nice place and I really like it, right? But as that happiness matures, it's like the mind realizes it doesn't even need that. It gets more still even more quiet, right? It's not, the mind isn't, doesn't feel like it has to do anything with its thoughts. Like, oh, I got to get rid of those thoughts, right? It's just leaving things alone. And that's the happiness of dispassion. I can just leave things alone. I can let nature be nature. And then the next level of happiness is then the mind is seeing the mind more, just the space of the mind because the activity of the mind has gotten pretty quiet now. It's still there, but it's not very active. What the mind perceives, what the mind feels, 
what the mind intends or wants to do. It's just really chilled down, chilled out rather. So then there's more of a sense of just space, the space of knowing, the space of awareness. And that still seems personal. It just still seems, seems like my mind, my knowing or something like that. But now because things are pretty chilled out, the mind can notice that selfing. It's pretty subtle, you know, taking the mind, the space of the mind personally, taking awareness personally. And that begins to quiet down. Not the space of the mind, but the, the selfing around it starts to quiet down because that's the only thing going on at that point, right? There's not a lot of thinking. There's not a lot of perceiving. There's not a lot, about, a lot of mental constructions. The mind's pretty quiet, pretty spacious. And so any kind of taking it personally is the big thing in the room. And now awareness sees that. And so, oh, that's just selfing. And just seeing the selfing, any eye-making, mind-making, taking anything personally, seeing it as just some activity, seeing the selfing in an impersonal way is what quiets it down. Not trying to get rid of it. You don't have to get rid of it. Just like we did with the more gross level of thoughts in the previous level of happiness, the happiness of dispassion, now there's this more refined happiness. The happiness of cessation, right? The selfing ceases, stops, right? So then we notice the mind that is free. Like what is a moment when there's not much taking, pers- taking things personally going on? What's that moment like? So in Buddhist terms, we say, well, that's, that's freedom. I mean, momentary freedom, because it doesn't last for long. But those little moments where there's no grasping, no attachment in the mind, no selfing, no eye-making or mind-making, that's a very particular experience in it. And when the mind sees it clearly, it changes the mind. It's like the mind has a whole new orientation about where to go for happiness. It thought having a nice cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior was happiness or having a nice meal or going to bed and nobody bothering me. That's happiness. But now it sees that putting down the load of taking things personally is a much more profound, satisfying happiness. Right? Each step along the way, the mind realizes that this happiness is more profound than the previous happinesses that I knew. And it it starts to orient around that. And then the last happiness is just wanting to sustain that that previous happiness of the dropping of selfing or grasping or taking things personally. And we'll come back to this next week. And as I mentioned, you know, this is a lot. But the most important takeaway from this topic is that The whole path the Buddha points to is a path of a refinement of happiness. It's not like, oh, God, the world is such a mess. We might as well accept it because not accepting it just makes it worse. It's true. The world is a mess. There's a lot of suffering. It's very easy for us to get pulled into cycles of suffering, right? But there's also a way to be a human being, to be sensitive, to have a life, a body and a mind, There is a way to train the mind to be engaged, to be intimate, but not suffer. And to move from more gross to more refined experiences of happiness. And then the the beautiful thing is, is as the mind moves, discovers, 
stabilizes these more refined levels of happiness, we end up just on a more superficial level being a better person with our partner, with our families, with the world at large. How we show up, what we say, what we do, what we refrain from doing. Everything just seems to work a little bit better doing this inner work. So it's not like you have to choose between caring about the world or doing this inner work. This is how you do the work of caring for the world, is doing this inner work. At least that's my personal experience and understanding. So I want to leave it here. Like I mentioned, we'll, we'll have one more week on this chapter. But we have some time. It would be nice to hear from you, your own comments about what you've been learning in your practice, questions, anything related to the practice, not necessarily what we covered tonight, but also your own reflections on what I've said tonight, too, would be very appropriate. And it's nice to say your name, and you need to point the mic close, set your mouth like this. Sorry. Who'd like to begin? What thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Jean, please. Um, my personal experience, you talked about um, the attitude of mind, maybe some equanimity overlaying what else you're experiencing. And um, over the years, I've a, a typical state of mind for me is kind of a, a heavy heart or sadness of some kind. Um, and I was just noticing recently, um, well, you know, and I'm very aware I can feel the sadness and then have uh, equanimity over it. But I was just thinking tonight, when I sit down, um, especially if I haven't sat for a little while, I have kind of, um, um, I guess you, you just, I just maybe say kind of a buzzing energy, just sort of um I've been too, not, well, I haven't <laughs> sat enough, so I don't have, you know, this, the pleasantness of being mm -hmm. calmer and, you know, the first few m minutes. And it's sort of interesting to me. I'm more like, oh, the sadness is the important thing to pay attention to, but it's really every, there's many, many different feelings, like this buzzing or whatever is just as significant as any other thing that's there underlying and it can all be sort of within the the equanimity peacefulness of looking at it so so i do find it very interesting <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the key is to find it interesting and you know what that interest does that curiosity it will then eventually will catch yourself challenging the notion that there's some deep pool of sadness it's not like in moments there isn't a deep pool of sadness clearly but what happens is the mind wants to construct a story because it makes us feel safe, even if it's sort of a difficult story like, hey, I have a deep pool of sadness. Because the reality is sometimes there's a deep pool of sadness and sometimes there's not a deep pool of sadness. Even if a lot of the time there is actually a deep pool of sadness, the fact remains that some of the time it's just not there. And, and when we notice that, then it interrupts the conclusion, the way the mind has defined ourselves. Oh, I'm somebody who has a deep pool of sadness. And then our attitude when it is there to the deep pool of sadness changes because we realize it isn't some permanent truth about me. It's some experience that comes and goes and is not self. And that's and it, it really 
it's a real step towards liberation when because we do all of us we have sticky patterns or patterns emotional patterns that repeat themselves you know frames like sadness or some people more ang anxiousness um, hollowness icy nihilistic existential angst I mean it's we all have our own deeper itch whatever it is right but the key is not to build a sense of me around these repeated patterns but to really be honest it's something that comes and goes and so when it in when you discover gene moments where it's just not there really let that come in deep and challenge any sort of fixed idea that might that my mind might have created that it's always there yeah thanks for bringing that up would like to go next my name is Roseanne and I wish I were more evolved in my practice because it sounds so good. I mean, I want to be there in that place because I've found recently I haven't been sitting enough and I've also been easily thrown off track and proliferating. And I did have an experience that I can share. And my, my neighbor's best friend took his life two weeks ago. And just hearing that, even though I didn't know this person well, I just saw him come and go a lot over the years I've lived next door. But it makes me want to make stories up about that and what I can do and what role, what, you know, getting closer and closer and closer to that story, but how, how to stay compassionate and still detached. And you might make some comments. And I, I mean, everything you said tonight kind of leads me to that, but that's where I wish I could be, you know, six months down the road having done these steps because I know that it isn't something I can just change like that. I'm still going to have this on my mind. It's still going to make me wonder if there's something I can do or what to say or make up a story about why he did it or all mm -hmm. this. Yeah, and even back up a little bit further, because I think what your mind is really curious about is, what's a skillful way for my heart to relate to this or to hold this experience that my next-door neighbor's best friend committed suicide, right? So, and it's it's a confusing and disorienting thing and don't presume you have to do anything so you, you really want to go to sort of just that foundational level like there's something happening right I heard this information and now there's something happening in my mind and body and what what would be the skillful way to relate to this well balance non-aversion right kindness is non-aversion the absence of needing to do anything but not afraid of doing anything but not the mind and body not dependent on having to act right because that can be its own kind of violence you know when I've got to be kind to you because I'm too uncomfortable not being kind to you you know something like that and to instead be in this to to realize like so just to ask like is there a way from my heart is there a way for my mind to be intimate with whatever I'm feeling? And part of what you're going to feel is, I don't have all the details, right? Because you don't. And are you okay with that? Can you be okay not knowing the whole picture? And knowing that things happen, and we don't know when they're going to happen or why they're happening even. So this is the world we live in where things happen and we don't have the whole picture. Even in our own minds, you know, we find ourselves saying something or doing something, and we don't even know why we did that. I mean, and a lot of times we'll tell ourselves a story, 
because we're not comfortable not knowing. So part of what the strength of equanimity, this beautiful balance is, it's okay that the world is confusing and unknowable. Right? It doesn't have a problem with the world being the way that it is. So this balance that we call equanimity, equipoise, like I said, you don't have to use the word equanimity if you don't like it, but it is the beautiful maturing refinement of love. It is the true reliable love, right? spiritual love. And every heart, every mind has this potential, right? It's just a matter of letting it mature. And the way it matures is noticing it. Every time we notice it for a few moments, it becomes a deeper habit of the mind. And when we get in the habit of noticing it, it's just the, the maturing, the development, the blossoming of that quality of love just continues to blossom, you know, continues to develop. It becomes a more stable, ongoing present in the, presence in the mind. A uh, student of mine who has died now but uh, um, called it creeping spaciousness, right? It just sort of creeps in. And you hear this, you know, when you, like, people like Jane who've been practicing for whatever, 25 years or so, you know, when you hear people who've been practicing a long time, they always talk about how, yeah, my mind is still messed up, but there seems to be this creeping spaciousness, like, I'm okay being a confused human being. I'm okay being unskillful. I'm okay being skillful too. You know, it's like, and there's a sense of the heart being more and more unshakable not more and more perfect, or what becomes perfect is how the mind trusts this balance. That's what develops, not some outer perfection necessarily. Although we do, you know, generally get more skillful, but it's that inner ease, that inner quality of forgiveness, and that unshakable sense that, yeah, well, it is the way it is, and I'll find a way to make it work. Even if we're dying or even if the worst thing possible is happening, that would be a useful response. Oh, oh, this is happening. It's not what I want to happen. It's really unpleasant. I'm really confused. It really hurts. So what's the skillful way to show up to this? Yeah, thanks for sharing with us too. We have time for at least one more person. Who would like to go next? Yeah, please, Brad. You want to pass it over to Brad? I, <clears throat> a lot of my friends know that I uh, come here and study, and I try to explain things like equanimity, and inevitably I get, you mean nothing's important. I mean, you could come to that conclusion because I can live with it and be peaceful, and not have to run out and change it or feel like I have to do it today. And it's a hard one to explain to somebody who, who hasn't thought about it. Uh, anyway, I think that's obvious, but I, I still try. And I, I, the other part you mentioned is that as I become better with this, I'm more sensitive. I was playing with my grandchildren today and was sort of overcome by how other people must love their neighbors and their children just like I do. It's just a more sensitive thing. But anyway, it's uh, going back to my friends. They have a hard time grasping that I can be 
at peace with the world situation, which is has lots of flaws, and and still recognize it as bad or needing change. Yeah. Well, you can use that that teaching that the Dalai Lama often uses from this Indian saint Shanti Deva. He was a Buddhist monk back. I don't know, maybe I forget if it was like 900 CE. So, you know, a while back, 1200 or 1100 years ago or so. But anyway, the, the rough translation, and you hear this, the Dalai Lama often repeats this quote from Shantideva, that uh, if there's something you can do, like about the messiness of the world, the suffering in the world, the injustice in the world, or even with a friend, if there's something you can do to alleviate suffering, to make the world a better place, well, then do it. And if there's nothing you can do in this moment, it's, it's not for you to do or you don't have the power to do it, then there's nothing for you to do. But in either case, there is something for you to do in this moment or there isn't something for us to do in this moment. What's, what would be the purpose of being tight or being afraid or being angry or being reactive? If there's something to do, we do it in that balanced, loving tender-hearted way. And if there's nothing to do, the heart is okay just being, right? Because the heart isn't dependent on doing or not doing. Because it's abiding in equanimity, abiding in love, abiding ultimately in emptiness and not taking it personally, right? So this is the conundrum that Brad is pointing to because it is hard in language because when people hear that, not taking things personally, the only way a normal mind, I mean an unpracticed mind, can construct meaning around that not taking things personally is being passive. So we have to remember, like in a very strong way, that shadow, like interpreting the teachings as a movement towards passivity. It's just the opposite. And you'll see this. If you start digging into the practice, you'll see that the most pronounced thing that happens in the early decades of practice is we become more and more sensitive. We feel things more deeply. Our partner's a little, something's going on, or something's going on in us, or something's going on in the world, and we can't help but be touched because we've been purposefully stripping away the defenses and the armor and learning to be awake and sensitive and in the present moment. So we have less defense. The heart cares more. So the wisdom develops, that wisdom of equanimity and not taking things personally, just to say it in simple terms, it arises precisely because it's the only way to manage the deepening sensitivity, is to realize its nature and not self. So then our engagement is freed up from taking it personally. So we were, it's all about a beautiful, skillful response. And that's really the fruit of the practice, not hiding somewhere because the world is messy, but learning how to live in the messy world without being burdened by it. And it's precisely because the heart's willing to let everything in, because now as different emotions or different emotional strings are strummed, you know, we see the suffering, we see this beauty over here, 
we see something that is uncertain or ambiguous over there, we're not afraid to let it in because we see that whatever is being felt emotionally, that's just that feeling being felt. We're not constructing a story about Brad who can't handle this feeling. We're just feeling the intensity of the feeling or the beauty of the feeling, right? Because it's not all bad that we feel. So we come more alive as a human being, not to some image of a Buddhist, you know, that's sort of floating above and not touched by anything and doesn't really care and looks at the groveling humans below. Oh, all you attached beings over there. No. As someone once said, you know, the more we practice, we end up being the first to cry, the first to laugh, the first to help, the first to let things be. You know, we're nimble in that way, responsive in that way, not like pretending to be equanimous. It's really a, a balance that allows for response, responsivity. But it's 8.30, so we need to leave it here. Thanks, Brad, and everyone else for your sharings. And Let's just take 30 seconds to let go of the words. Maybe take one or two breaths together in silence. Appreciate the silence. And just the space. everyone. So nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.